Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And he swings, hits it high, and deep, and gone! Still going back! Welcome back to The Call-Up, your go-to podcast on the future stars of Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Arm Layton, and in today's episode, we are checking in on the Arizona Fall League. I am out here in Scottsdale. We have been to a few ball games already and getting as many live looks as we can. I want to kind of share some of those takeaways so far from the AFL and just break down some of the standouts so far, some of the players that maybe I wasn't planning on coming out here to see, but all of a sudden was a little bit surprised maybe by what they were able to do. And that's why I love this league is you never know what you're going to see. There's so much talent out here. But then, of course, the big names like Chase DeLauder, James Triantos, who has been fantastic the entire time he's been out here. Carson Williams with the Rays. Victor Scott with the Cardinals also was a lot of fun to watch. We're going to get through as many names as we can with some thoughts and a little bit of a breakdown on each of them. What I think they may be keying in on as they're out here, as you know, every player is trying to develop some sort of aspect of their game while they're out here. Some are just catching up on reps, but others are specifically working on certain things. You know, whether I think that they've been able to tap into that a little bit, obviously each case is a little bit different and players are all out here for those different reasons, but also what they were able to do that really stood out to me in person. A lot of these players, you know, we've talked about a lot from the the last year plus and there's been Countless at-bats I've been able to watch on video from different angles and, of course, the data aspect as well. But there's something about being able to to get out here and see some of these players up close and personal where you can key in on some of those things that you were looking for in the video. And, again, also see some of the things that are tougher to pick up on video. Jumps, for example, uh, on the base paths and in the field are are tough to see. I try my best to try to get as many, you know, wide and broad shots on video as you can get, but I mean being able to break down the defensive side of things is is definitely a lot easier when you're there in person and then of course just batting practice, seeing guys go through their routine, you know, some of the things that they like to do in BP, also just being able to get more swings that you're able to get video of and get looks at through that batting practice and then see how it translates into the game. And again, some of the things that each player is focusing on is really nice and and really helpful out here. So we're going to dive into as many players as we can here and just kind of talk about the experience thus far of what we've been able to see. Of course, every game, there's going to be a couple of good players left out of the lineup because every team is so loaded with offensive pieces. So some of the teams that I went out and saw, like didn't get a chance to see Jace Young yet. I'm sure I'll be able to see him at some point. 
just missed Reggie Crawford, was hoping to see him uh, swing it a little bit because there were some things in the video uh, that made me a little bit worried with the swing and miss with Crawford, so was very eager to see him in person and see some batting practice. Unfortunately, was not in the lineup in the game I went to, uh, so those are guys that I will definitely be trying to see before I leave here uh, and leave the fall league. But standing out in the beginning here of, of a couple players that I was able to see plenty of so far... I'll start with Chase DeLauder and DeLauder of the Cleveland Guardians. We talked about him as, you know, one of the big climbers on just baseball's top 100 list where he cracked the top 50. And this is a guy that's had a bit of a roller coaster, right? Because he was a first round pick, has dealt with injuries. You know, his injury to his foot cut his final year of, of college short and maybe resulted in him slipping in the draft a little bit and then had a little bit of another issue as he broke into pro ball that delayed his debut there as well. So, he had at-bats to make up. We we didn't get to see a full season from DeLauder this year, and he was phenomenal regardless when we did get to see him. He kind of picked up right where he left off at James Madison, which was really impressive. And then beyond that, uh, has been pretty darn good in the fall league so far. But he was someone that I've been very interested and very excited to see in person because DeLauder, I think a, a big topic of conversation you'll see on on Twitter or X right now is DeLauder's swing and and you know, that that kind of scissor kick that he has, or you could kind of see like a very dramatic forward move at times where it just seems like the lower half is kind of sliding forward. I'll say this: he is a guy that is extremely physical, and that's another thing. Like you get in person and you really see some of these dudes in terms of how quick they are, but also how big and powerful some of these players are. It's it's really impressive. And, and DeLauder's exactly that. He's 6'4", 235 pounds. And the other thing is a lot of these listing heights and weights are so off. Jack and I have talked about that, especially for like the international free agent prospects. They never get updated. Sometimes for four or five years, they sign when they're 17, 18 years old. And you know, you'll see guys that are legitimately four inches bigger than whatever the listed height is and maybe 30, 40 pounds bigger than that. So it's always nice to be able to see these players in person and, and really get a gauge for, for how big and, and how strong they are uh, while still being able to produce plus run times. That's exactly what DeLauder is. I mean, he is still able to motor uh, despite how big he is and, and strong he is. And I think that part of it is really important here because the move that DeLauder has, I, I would say is is relatively inefficient if we're talking about you know what you want to do to give yourself the most time to get the best swing off. But that said, he's so strong and has such a good feel for the barrel that he can get away with that. I, I think there is more to be unlocked here, and, and that's the important thing is I think people are keying in on it, and it's become a very zero or 100 thing, right? Like this this move, this slide with his lower half is going to be the reason why he won't succeed, or it doesn't matter, he's going to be a stud regardless. And I think there there needs to be a little bit more nuance to the conversation than that, right? It's this guy is talented enough to produce and and hit despite this move or you know this this lower half inconsistency and kind of lack of of holding the back hip and and all of those things but there's so much more to be unlocked if he can kind of work on that a little bit and, and rein that in because even though DeLauder and I think anybody can can make the case that 
certain players can get away with certain things and certain players can produce uh, despite not having the Aaron Judge swing or, you know, the Bryce Harper swing or, or anyone specifically trying to pattern those exact moves. There is something to be said about this game is so hard now. Uh, if you have an inefficiency in your swing, it will get exposed at the big league level because pitchers will just key in on that. Uh, when they don't, you'll be able to get some good swings off, but you won't be as consistent as you should be. And I think that's where DeLauder is at right now. We're, we've only seen him mash thus far, so that is an important note. But I do think that a large part of that comes from him being more advanced than pretty much all of the pitchers that he's seeing. He makes elite swing decisions. That was that was very clear. And his overall just fantastic feel for the barrel. This guy's producing plus run times. And even when he hits a ball soft, he can beat out ground balls. And he's strong enough to just flare balls into the shallow outfield that would probably be dribblers for most other hitters or infield pop-ups. And I think that's a big key here too. If you look at a lot of the Again, like kind of some of the underlying numbers of you know what the expectation would be based on his batted ball data and, and what the results have been. There's a little bit of a discrepancy, uh, but that said, a lot of the important metrics are pretty solid. He makes a lot of contact in the zone. His overall exit velocities are strong. It's just that there's a wide gap right now between I think the top end exit velocities and maybe the 30th and 40th percentiles. There's just a lot of weak contact sprinkled in there. And and that's a testament, I think, to the, the lower half inconsistencies. That said, if he even gets close to a barrel on it, he can do damage with it. And we saw that. I mean, I know the ball flies out here, but I watched this guy fight off a fastball in on his hands over the right field wall. It probably wouldn't get out anywhere else. It was a 90 mile per hour exit velocity. But that said, it's just a testament to how strong he is. Fights one pull side, puts it over the wall, and it was a ball that I think most hitters would have probably hit a shallow pop-up on. Like, he just fought it over the wall out there and right. I'm going to share some of the video that we got on DeLauder in that game because there was several, I would say, kind of tied-up swings. And that seems to be where he can run into some trouble is that drift, that slide forward. People always talk about the short finish, right? That short finish that you see at the end of his swing. I don't care about the finish. The finish is kind of a product of whatever you're doing through the zone and and where you're putting your body. The reason why the finish, in my opinion, looks so short is he's sliding forward at contact. And and think about it. Almost if you have the ability to try to take an air swing right now, if you're sliding forward, your body is forward, your arms have less room to finish. So your finish is going to be more tied up if your body is moving forward. When guys have those high and long finishes, it's because their arms are able to extend out you know, beyond their body. So if you're sliding forward with your torso, your finish is going to be more tied up. And I think that's kind of a little key into what can happen in the zone because if it's a pitch that's hard and inside, he might get tied up a little bit. And we've seen that. But again, he has such a good feel for the barrel that he'll flare something flare some out to left field for a shallow base hit, or he will just fight one off for a hit. But again, it makes things a little bit harder for him. It makes it more difficult to consistently get your best swing off. And it's something that could get uh, picked on a little bit more at the highest, highest levels. That said, again, I think it's also something that is very easy to continue to hone in on and improve. Josh Lowe is one of the guys that I remember is as clearly as possible that had this very exact problem of you know maybe not holding the back hip long enough sliding forward and just relying on natural athleticism and ability delauder has got a better feel to hit than low uh, so I think that's an important key in this too and 
probably at this juncture has a, a better approach than he had as well. Uh, Lowe's also a freaky athlete, but I think DeLauder has even more upside to that point. So that that's the thing is Josh Lowe was a guy that had that issue, was a little bit raw with, with the swing mechanics and got it right. And you saw what he just did this past year. I think if DeLauder follows a similar path, his ceiling is, is even higher than that. And what stood out to me, feel to hit is, I mean, that's something you can't really teach. The approach, very difficult to teach. Some of the little swing patterning, th- patterning things, I think he'll get there. And again, when he gets the best swing he can off, you're seeing 108s, 109s, 110s. There's monster power there, crazy athleticism, ability to play center field. I came away impressed with DeLauder, but I think it's silly to say, hey, the numbers are there. Hey, the production is there. Uh, he doesn't need to make any improvements with that lower half and, and any improvements with, with the pre-swing moves to, to get to where he needs to be at the highest level. I think there are some uh, things that he could clean up and and some things that will help him make the adjustments to the more challenging levels and also just tap into what is an extremely exciting ceiling. But that also leads me into, and I'm mostly going to talk about hitters here, but I do want to talk about one pitcher because this is the exact type of pitcher that I think can give Delauder some problems as he continues to you know kind of struggle with that drift a little bit. We also saw him struggle left on left at times this year. And sometimes when you have that forward move, velocity gets by you. You're giving yourself less time to really have the ball come towards you if you're also moving towards it, but also cutters, right? Things that are breaking in on your hands can be very difficult to get good swings off on. And he had to face Tristan Veerling. And Tristan Veerling was a third round pick by the Yankees in 2022. Unfortunately, right as he was going to get ready to make his pro debut, went down with an elbow issue. So we haven't really seen him throw at all as, as a professional. And this was a guy that, you know, showed some really good stuff at Gonzaga, struggled with command at times. And we saw that a little bit already in the fall league so far, but the Arizona fall league has really been our first look at him in a game setting professionally. And what stood out to me is the shape of this guy's stuff. It's really unique. He's big. He's 6'4", 200 pounds, but he gets this cut ride on his fastball. And this was something that we were talking about. If you remember back to the Padres top prospect list. I was talking about Adam Mazur and his fastball and how sometimes it's a little bit flat, but over the last few starts of the season, a lot of the the fastballs that he was throwing were getting way more swings and misses. And the shape was naturally this cut ride that I don't know if it was him just, you know, inadvertently cutting the fastball a little bit or actually finding something that worked a little bit better with the shape and leaning into that. And that cut ride is really important because you want to get away from the dead zone and the dead zone is going to be 12, 13 inches of vertical and then six, seven inches of horizontal. If you can get the fastball to have as close to zero horizontal as possible and as much vertical as possible, that is a really tough shape for guys to hit. Uh, And we see most of the high IVB fastballs in terms of those high carry fastballs. They're going to have more than one or two inches of horizontal movement. That's fine because they have so much vertical. But if you're hovering around 14, 15 inches of induced vertical break and you don't have, you know, an extremely low release point or anything that's, you know, outlier in that regard or crazy extension, then you want to try to minimize that horizontal movement generally if you're throwing a four seamer. And that's exactly what Veerling does. So Veerling's around 15 and two, 14 and one, which 
is that cut ride fastball, which means it's almost cutting towards a left-handed hitter and carrying upwards. It's a nightmare for lefties, and uh, cut ride is really hard to teach, really hard to do, and usually kind of comes naturally to, to pitchers. Justin Steele is a guy that does that as well, and, and you see why his fastball is inexplicably great. Veerling had that rolling for him, and it stood out against guys like Jacob Marcy of the Padres, who I'm going to talk about as well. We talked about him when we broke down the farm system, but it was really fun to watch him in action. Even Marcy, who's been tearing up this league, those were some of the most uncomfortable at-bats I've seen him take, either in the video that I've watched from previous AFL at-bats or just in person so far. He ended up getting some really good swings off the second Veerling got out of that game. It was the same story with Chase DeLauder. I mean, that cut ride tied him up. He was able to flare a couple hits that just, or one hit that just snuck over uh, the third base or shortstop's header right between there. But he just seemed uncomfortable and tied up most of the game. Marcy, a guy that has a really good field to hit at borderline elite contact rates, was swinging through more pitches than I had seen him swing through because, again, that fastball was doing something that. Their brain was not really expecting to see from it as as it came out of his hand. And, and of course, the unpredictability helps a lot. There's no scouting report, really, on Tristan Veerling, who hasn't thrown much as a professional, so the anonymity kind of works in his favor as well. But, again, that shows you just the, the movement profile of, of that cut-ride fastball. Off of that, he was mixing in a slider, which was really solid. I thought it flashed above average and looked like a good pitch for him. And that kind of gives him that two-pitch mix, but he also has a curveball and a changeup that he's mixed in ever so slightly. But it's been mostly fastball, slider, and I think that's just been the focus for him as he gets his feet back under him. But I just wanted to talk about Veerling because that cut-ride fastball works to both lefties and righties. He has a lot of confidence in it, and it was up to 95, mostly sitting 93-94 in that shape at that velocity that will play. And then off of that, the slider worked really well and had hitters kind of off balance all game long and and stuck in between. Good separation between those pitches as well with a lot of different movement profiles, but also you're seeing the fastball in the the 93-94 range and then that slider in the 83-84 range with good movement and sharp bite. Veerling, it hasn't been great for him out here. That was his best start or best appearance so far. He's only had a few, but I thought that was something that stood out to me. The Yankees have done an unbelievable job with developing these second, third, fourth round arms that they've taken often out of the West Coast over the last couple years. And I think Veerling could be a guy that now that he's healthy, they can actually get rolling and and start to develop similarly to how they have had success with a Drew Thorpe or a Chase Hampton uh, or some of the other guys that we've seen just have so much success in this Yankee system recently. He's different than, I would say, a Drew Thorpe because the command is, is, a, is a challenge here, but I still think that the Yankees can help unlock something here with Veerling as they've had success with these types of pitchers that maybe were not considered first or second round talents, uh, definitely not first round talents, and they end up turning them into guys or pitchers that probably would go in the first round of a redraft based on some of the tweaks that they make or gains that they make. Staying on the pitching front, because there's only one other pitcher I really want to talk about at this point, and then we'll just kind of fly through the rest of the hitters. I got to talk about Emiliano Teodo, a right-hander with the Texas Rangers organization who Oh my gosh, does he throw hard? I was able to see him yesterday, and that fastball is lively. They've they've tweaked the shape a little bit over the last year or so because it was a flat, 
flat fastball, but also still was coming in at 100, 101, up to 102. But now kind of adjusting it to have a bit more horizontal and not try to have as much vertical. Some guys just don't have that. And if you don't have that, trying to throw it with uh, you know, with ride can end up just resulting in it being closer to the dead zone. So while it's, of course, the best to have a fastball that is you know, 101 with ride, there's a reason why not a lot of pitchers can throw that hard and also have the desired shape. It's just really tough. And you don't want to have a straight arrow fastball when you throw that hard. You want it to just move. And even if it's more of a horizontal runner, you may not have as much whiff in the zone, but you're not going to get hit very hard ever when you're throwing that hard with unique movement to it. So Teodo started to lean a little bit more into that arm side run. He'll still mix in the four seamer that I think looks like it carries a bit more off of a fastball that also has a run. So he has these two variations of the fastball that both are at 99 to 101, touching 102, and it is electric. He has been absolutely fantastic thus far in the Arizona Fall League where he has not allowed a run yet. And I just watched him go two innings and again, two innings, no runs, picks up his fourth save. But he has not allowed a run so far in 10 innings. He has struck out 20. He has walked two. And he's allowed just two hits. He's been near unhittable so far as he's been out here. And it's easy to understand why when you see that fastball doing what it's doing. But also the slider is diabolical. It's devastating at the mid-80s, just diving right out of the zone. And when you're a left-handed hitter who has to worry about you know, a fastball running away that's also at 100, and then a slider that's breaking hard in on you towards your back leg, that's really tough. If you're a right-handed hitter, you're worrying about a fastball running in on your hands at 100, and then a slider that tunnels off of that and just falls off the table. Teodo had lefties and righties looking very uncomfortable in the outing that I saw, and it's been most impressive to see him filling up the strike zone. He walked one in those two innings that I saw, but again, has not really walked anybody uh, throughout this fall league, which is extremely encouraging for a guy that has high leverage potential, has closer potential at the highest level. So when you have that slider that looks like the fastball out of the hand, his arm speed's ridiculous, and it just dives right off the table... Both lefties and righties are not going to hit very well against that pitch. Then, he'll mix in still that four-seamer that has improved still a little bit more shape-wise. So it's gotten a little bit further from the dead zone, and that four-seamer will buzz up upstairs. So now you're worrying about a sinker running in on you, uh, a a slider breaking away from you, or the other way around if you're a left-handed hitter. And then you still got to worry about that four-seamer at the top, and he'll surprise you. He'll mix in the occasional change-up here and there when he wants to. But Teodo looks like somebody that... I think could be in the the Rangers bullpen next year and pitching high leverage for them, especially with the gains that he's made in the command department. Back to the offensive side of things, we're going to talk about some hitters that really stood out in in the first couple games that I saw, and that's James Triantos uh, of the Chicago Cubs and then also Jacob Marcy of the San Diego Padres. I won't spend as much time on Marcy because we just talked about him in that Padres top prospect episode. Definitely go check that out. But the first thing I'll just say with Marcy and just quickly is that he's another player, and I'm going to talk about it with Victor Scott uh, on a different level, but he's another player in Marcy that just you can't fully appreciate till you see him play in person because nothing jumps off the page with him. He, he's a strong guy, but the exit velocities are, are below average. 
He is a bigger build, but he runs really well. And he's extremely comfortable in the outfield and gets really good reads. And the closing speed is good enough out there. Extremely aggressive on the base paths, too. And that was the side of it that was fascinating because he's an above average runner, probably not a plus or plus plus runner, but he he runs the bases like an easy plus runner. His jumps are great. He gets a big lead that he's very comfortable getting back to first with. His feel for the game is extremely impressive. He doesn't expand. The takes are easy. The the at-bats are really comfortable. Uh, And even after a couple tougher at-bats against Veerling, locked back in, smoked a double in the gap, uh, and was a menace on the base path. Stole a couple bags as well and looked really good in the outfield. So this is a guy that can just impact the game in so many different ways. And while the exit velocities may be below average, I think he finds ways to get into gap-to-gap power and maybe sneak some home runs out uh, in games, which is important because I think he'll have just enough power to be a productive hitter at the big league level when you combine the walks and all the intangibles as well. He's a guy that I do think can be a big league factor for the Padres this year, and watching the way he goes about his business makes me even more confident that the Padres could give him an opportunity even early in this season because he can be a big league help for them as they try to figure out what Trent Grisham can do for them and some of these other outfielders. I think Marcy has the polish, has the, uh, I think, the overall feel for the game to be able to handle a pretty quick and aggressive call-up. That's what stood out to me in this ballgame that we saw in all the different ways that he can help a team win ball games. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. As for Chicago Cubs prospect James Triantos, I mean, we knew this guy had an elite feel for the barrel. I mean, we saw 90% zone contact on the season. You watch this guy hit. It's just a really smooth line drive oriented swing. But in person, there were some swings that he got off that were just so impressive in terms of this guy. And I tweeted this video out. He was so fooled on a really good slider and just throws his hands at a ball that maybe was a, a couple inches off the ground and flares it over the second baseman's head for a base hit. That really stood out to me because it was a pitch that most guys probably either just check swing and try to shut it down and end up just going too far and just eat the strike or just swing right over. Uh, But for Trianto, somehow on his front foot, kind of lost his body, totally fooled, was still able to adjust his hands and throw them at a ball that, I I mean, I I don't know how he had any business getting to that. But the also intriguing thing was that was probably the only fooled swing I saw from Triantos all game. Yeah, he had some foul balls and things. That was just a tick late or whatever it was. There was never really a, oh man, that that was a, a nasty pitch. They got him, you know, really looking crazy there. There was never really a swing and miss that looked like he was fooled or, or overmatched or anything like that. He catches up to velocity. His rhythm at the plate looks great right now. It's an early load. It's smooth. He repeats his moves, and he is ready to hit consistently, and that's why he rarely swings and misses. But it says something about James Triantos when your worst swing of the day, I think probably the most fooled you were all game long, was a single because he's able to just get to anything and fight off pitches and 
do something with nothing. That field of hit was extremely impressive. He moves pretty well too, in terms of being able to run the bases. And I think that's why we saw him steal plenty of bags this year. What's interesting is the defensive side of things is still a bit of a question. Had a little bit of a bad throw at second base. The footwork in the field is not quite the same and uh, trying to get comfortable with throwing from the different angles. I'm really interested to see where they ultimately play Trianto. So I was hoping to see him get some reps in the outfield. I'm going to try to catch another game or two of him there. Uh, that's the big question here. Uh, in terms of the power, I think he's tapping into a bit more. And that's been something that I think he's been focused on out here. He already hit one of his hardest hit balls of the year at 106. That might have been his hardest hit ball of the year uh, being out here. And yes, the ball carries more out here, but it doesn't come off the bat harder in terms of exit velocity. So that is a good thing to see. But overall, I think it's going to be the defensive side of things that have been a big focus for him out here and figuring out what his long-term position is because the way he can hit the overall comfortable approach and the feel to find the gaps there is a high chance that he can force his way up to the big leagues relatively quickly because he's going to be able to handle the upper levels I think he'll actually hit better at the upper levels with his approach and his feel to hit so it's really where is he going to play and how much power is there in there I saw enough to, to see gap-to-gap gap doubles power, sneak out a few home runs. And I think he's going to continue to tap into a little bit more. But his game is a lot of line drives, a lot of barrels, spray it all over the field. And I think that will be good for him. I think that's something that he can handle and be just a productive hitter, especially because he's able to walk a bit. I think the bigger question is where does he play defensively? And I'm going to need to see more games to get an idea there. But I am very convinced with the bat thus far. The question will just be how much upside is there in that bat, and it seems like we're slowly ticking towards a little bit more upside every single time we see him play. Important to remember, he's still very young as a high school guy, hasn't even turned 21 years old yet, so there's still some time for some physical maturation, and again, the field of hit is just absurd, so if you can tap into even just a little bit more, just a couple ticks more in the EV department, uh, I think we'll see a much more exciting offensive profile. Moving on to Victor Scott II, the prospect, center field prospect for the St. Louis Cardinals. This guy, it's all about the wheels, right? We hear so much about the wheels. But unlike a lot of the prospects that were probably competing with Victor Scott for the stolen base title or just even at the top of the leaderboards in stolen bases, I think Scott's a little bit more complete of a player. And that was made very evident in the game that I was able to see with him. And I'm about to see another one in about a couple hours here as I'm recording. So I'll have more thoughts on Scott, but he's more than just a speedster. And yes, he's going to need to tap into probably a little bit more power. And so far in the fall league, not as much juice as you'd like to see because, you know, he slugged 425 in the regular season between high A and double A, which is extremely encouraging. I think that's more than enough slug for somebody with his speed and his ability in center field. But so far, 19 games, slugging just 388. It's a small sample size, and literally one home run can pretty much alter that slugging percentage and probably put it right up over the 400 spot. So it's nothing to really be worried about. But, you know, it was interesting to see how hard he was hitting the baseball regardless because there were some really good swings I saw and some foul balls that he pulled that were hit really well. And Scott's never going to be a guy that hits for a ton of power, and you don't really want him to get outside of who he is as a hitter because he's going to make his living on putting the ball in play and getting on base and stealing bags, and that's what we saw. This dude stole 95 bags this past season, and he's already 
13 for 15 so far in the Arizona Fall League. I mean, that's just fantastic stuff. We're talking about a slate of 151 games. This guy has swiped 107 bags. That is absolutely absurd. But the thing I wanted to key in on here is that there's just enough juice here to hit plenty of doubles. Similar to what we were talking about with Triantos, he can sneak in some some pop to the pull side. And there were some balls that he hit pull side that, you know, BP and, and also in the games that were foul but hit hard where it's like, okay, this guy's more than just a slap hitting speedster. The swing decisions were so good as well. And that's another thing that really stands out is a lot of the high hit tool or or above average to plus hit tool and speedster type guys tend to be aggressive because they feel like they can put anything in play. And if they put it in play, they're probably going to beat it out. The thing with Scott is he's patient. He's going to work his walks. He's and he might not walk with the best of them in terms of walk rate because nobody wants to put him on base, but he doesn't expand that much. He will get his walks and he's going to make a lot of contact as well. So he's a difficult at bat. He's really going to grind you out. And if you leave one middle in, if you groove one, he's got enough power to leave the yard to the pull side. And that's an important thing here is where he can at least sneak him out. And that was what stood out to me with Scott is there is just that sneaky pop, which is all he needs is really sneaky pop. And he's got that in there. The other side of it is that similar to what I said with Jacob Marcy of the Padres, Victor Scott's a player that you can't fully appreciate until you watch him in person. The leads that he gets off the bag, I mean, how confident he is pretty much halfway down to third base when he's taking his lead in second base. And even though there's an inside move coming, he gets back somehow. Uh, The jumps that he gets when he does go, uh, again, the takes that are so easy. He'd squared a bunt for a hit maybe, pull it back, and it's a borderline pitch, called a ball, draws the infield in a little bit, then slaps one the other way for a hit. He's just a really crafty and dynamic player. And then you look at him in center field, so comfortable out there, great jumps, really good reads. This is a guy that should be a very good defender in center, has the potential to be one of the best base dealers in the entire game at the highest level, and the bat has enough. When you don't whiff, when you're patient, and you at least have gap-to-gap power and can sneak some out to the pull side, Victor Scott's on the fringe of a top 100 prospect for me, and I really liked what we saw and what I saw from him in this fall league so far, and I'm eager to see a little bit more in the rest of my stay here. But this is a dude that knows himself as a player and leverages that very, very well. The next guy I wanted to discuss is actually Kevin Alcantara, who I was really excited to see. Just such an imposing dude at six foot six, but with such impressive athleticism. He's one of those guys that you see in person and it's like, wow, yeah, he's every bit as big as he looks on video and, and as long and as powerful and athletic and all that good stuff. I will say, though, in, in the game that I saw and going to get a little bit more uh, of a look at him, his timing was just a little bit off. And, and we know that there's going to be some swing and miss. And, and there's been some swing and miss so far in the fall league. What's interesting is I feel like he's looked a bit more out of sync in the fall league than he did down the stretch of the season. He was so good down the final stretch of the season and even into the double-A debut, looked looked relatively comfortable and, and had a strong finish. His contact rates improved. His chase rates improved a little bit. Overall, just had a better feel and command of his at-bats, and he just didn't look that way when I saw him. It just looked very rushed, and that could very much just be a timing thing. Look, he's very... He's very long-limbed, so the long levers are going to result in, in more whiff than, than the average hitter. But that said, he's started to show the ability to get shorter to the ball, uh, to just make more contact overall and make better swing decisions. I really think that in the games that I've seen so far in the Fall League, whether it was on video and now in person, 
this somewhat slow stretch has been largely due to timing. I don't see any major swing issues mechanically, but when you get there in person and you're watching where he's starting his load in terms of you know when the pitcher is is delivering and kind of comparing it to some other big hitters who start that load really early to get themselves in a hitting position as early as possible and see the ball even earlier. You need all of that when you have those longer levers and it might be a little bit harder to make swing decisions as late as some other hitters get to. So that was the one thing that stood out to me is swing look good overall and that's encouraging. I think he's continued to simplify the moves, shorten up and and just be a more efficient and compact hitter. The challenge now is the timing. And that comes with you know, the leg kick and the hand load being a little bit late, but also just the moving parts a little bit as well. Before, it's a lot quieter than it was. I think it's it's good enough in terms of the moves. I think he's just a little bit off in his timing. We'll see if that'll continue. But I think that's kind of been the issue for him so far and something that he can work through. And that's why you go to the Arizona Fall League, just get those additional reps. But a lot of swing and miss from what I saw and it really was him being rushed. Fastball's just getting on him too quick. And after the fastball got on him too quick, he tried to you know, kind of get out there in front, get the barrel out earlier. And that's when the breaking balls were coming in and he was swinging over those as well. So just a little in between right now. I'm not very concerned long term. I'm not very concerned about what he is struggling with right now in the AFL. But that said, this is still what the question is. Is he going to be able to make enough contact I don't think that this stretch here is going to impact my perspective on whether he can or can't. I've still been a bit wary of the hit tool. I still think it's very fringy, but right now it seems like it's more of a factor of timing rather than swing and efficiency or swing mechanics, which is which is good overall. On the other side of things in terms of what's causing the swing and miss, Carson Williams, shortstop prospect with the Rays, I am a little bit more concerned about in terms of how he will be able to consistently make contact, especially with breaking balls. And Williams does start his moves a little bit earlier and and does seem to put himself in a better position earlier. His timing seems to be pretty good, but his problem is just whiffing the zone, especially on breaking balls. He hits fastballs really well. He's a big dude. He's one of the younger kids out here, and he's got a lot of power. But his swing, he's he's a very vertical guy. He starts upright, and he, he gets into his back hip but he is a heavy front foot and a steep path down to the ball, which kind of causes him to go in and out of the zone too quickly. And and when that happens, you're going to swing over a lot of breaking balls. And that's been his challenge really as a pro so far. And he's been whiffing just too much out here and whiffing too much in general. And that's frustrating because he's so talented, 20 years old. By the way, watching him at shortstop, so good over there. Just an easy plus defender. So comfortable going to his left, to his right. Absolute cannon for an arm where he can make throws from all different all different angles. And when he's on the backhand, just easy carry and fires bullets across the diamond. But the problem right now has just been he can hit the fastballs. He can get the barrel to those. But just swinging over everything that has spin, any off speed, just seems like he can't adjust the barrel because it's in and out of the zone so quickly. And that's just the one thing that We'll see if the Rays, you know, hitting development and just just overhaul player development can start to get him right with that in terms of cleaning up the path and having it enter the zone a little bit earlier and stay through the zone longer because he's so powerful that even if he's going to have some of that whiff here and there, it's 
if you can get it to a point where it's palatable, I think he's a guy that could strike out 30% of the time at the highest level and be successful because he hits the ball really hard, he plays great defense, and he, he takes his walks. That is just the one thing that's missing right now is being able to hit the breaking balls enough to be able to climb. And the crazy thing is he crushes fastballs. He actually crushes high fastballs because his swing is very geared for, I think, anything that is coming in fast and elevated. But when it's breaking downwards and you have that steeper swing that kind of gets in and out of the zone too quickly, that's where the breaking ball is. You end up swinging over them and just don't have as much of a margin for error when you're a little bit early or a little bit late. Everything has to be almost perfectly on time to hit those breaking balls. And it wasn't surprising for me after watching him you know, in this in-person look on the open side, I was like, okay, I, I had a vague memory of what the numbers were against breaking balls, but I feel like they're going to be even worse than what I thought they were. And that was the case. He hit a buck 82 against breaking balls this year. And if you go to just curveballs, which are of course going to have a little bit more depth. So if your swing is in and out of the zone even quicker, it's going to be even worse against curveballs. 154 with a 484 OPS against curveballs. I mean, that's just not going to fly. Uh, that's that's definitely something that he's going to need to clean up. Changeups similarly gave him issues. You, you combine all three slider curve change. He hit 190, had an OPS in the mid 600s. You got to be better than that against breaking balls if you want to have some success. The interesting thing is he crushes the hangers when they're up. That that path is okay, and he hit 12 home runs against non fastballs, but. It's just, it's got to be better than that from a consistency perspective. And he's going to have to find a way to, you know, have a little bit more adjustability in his swing to hit these breaking balls. It's it's interesting because he doesn't whiff fastballs much at all. I mean, zone contact around 85% on four seamers, but then that zone contact on non-fastballs drops all the way down to 68%. That just shows you the difference here of what we're working with. If they can clean up that path, he's got plenty of time. He's just 20 years old. A lot of things that he can do, you can't teach. Even if he can just be serviceable against breaking balls, he's going to be a problem and he's going to be a really good big league shortstop. So still really optimistic on him. The glove is as advertised. The power is as advertised, but he's going to need to find a way to hit these breaking balls. Last guy I wanted to mention on this episode is Ryan Bliss, second baseman in the Seattle Mariners organization now. Of course, part of that trade that sent Paul Seawald over to the Diamondbacks and Bliss over to Seattle, one of the big breakout prospects in that system this year that they ended up cashing in on there to go get the closer that's helped them get to the World Series. But Bliss was a great get for Seattle and I think could be a big part of what they're doing next year with the way that he finished the year and some of the things that he has showcased in the Arizona Fall League thus far. Bliss was somewhat of an under-the-radar prospect, even out of the draft. I think people almost forget that Ryan Bliss was a second-round pick, which is the fascinating part about it. He was 42nd overall out of Auburn, but just didn't really come with a ton of prospect intrigue even after that, where it just seemed like not a lot of people had him on their radar going into this year, myself included. And part of that's probably because of how poorly he broke in to professional baseball right after the draft, hitting 214 with a 641 OPS uh, between low A and high A in 2022. But then this year just goes absolutely nuts between double A AA and triple A. Yes, more hitter-friendly environments, but just looked really, really good overall. 902 OPS, hit 304 on the year, stole 55 bags, hit 23 home runs. I mean, the guy just filled up the stat sheet this year, 34 doubles as well, and eight triples. So this is a candidate where I think the Mariners are saying, hey, you know, you might have a chance to break camp with us. We just want to get more looks at you. We want to see more of what you're doing out there. So they sent him to the Fall League. Another guy that, 
you'd expect the power to, to continue to play up out here. Yeah, maybe it won't play up the same way as it did in the PCL, where between there and the Texas League, double A AA and triple A, he slugged over 500. But honestly, a lot of his home runs came in the Texas League. Hitter-friendly environment as well, but I don't think it's any more hitter-friendly really than the Arizona Fall League in, in a lot of ways. So far, he has not been hitting for much power, uh, but he has looked really good overall in terms of his confidence and his comfortability at the plate. And in the outing, in the game that I saw, and in the couple games that I've been able to see of, of Ryan Bliss, he was a guy that was pretty aggressive at points this year. And there's a little bit of zone whiff there, nothing egregious, but there's some zone whiff in there. And the best way to hedge some zone whiff is being able to not expand the zone and be able to hit the pitches that you know you can hit. He has cut down on the chase rate a lot, especially as he's been out here, and he has walked a lot since being out here. He's been very selective. I think that's been a big part of his focus. You know, is When you're knocking on the door of a big league opportunity, you talk to guys, you, you talk to people about their acclimation process to the big leagues and you know what they feel like they would have liked to have known, what they could have done at the big league level uh, going in that would have prepared them a little bit better You know, when they were in double A AA and triple A. And it seems like for Ryan Bliss, it's been selectivity and just having a better approach out there. So far in the fall league, he's chasing less than 20% of the time. He has walked at a 20% clip. The, the extra base hits haven't been there the same way. He's hit some balls pretty hard. He's had some bad batted ball luck here and there, but he is hitting 283. He's getting on base at a 441 clip, but the slug has just not been there. 304 at the time of recording this. But again, he hit some balls really hard. Uh, some balls that would be out in some other places, that just in some spacious environments out here. Yeah, it might carry a bit, but it'll get run down. And that's what happened. I think he had a 412-foot flyout that was 102 off the bat. I think he had another one that was like 380 feet. There, there could easily be a couple extra base hits mixed in there, and all of a sudden the slug looks totally different. That's why I don't look too much at the specific stats in the AFL. And I'm going to do a whole episode on kind of what the ways that we should assess the AFL and what we should do with that information in terms of the numbers. And I think it's definitely an area where you got to focus on the the batted ball data a bit more. And from that perspective, Bliss has been hitting the ball pretty hard. He's He's been able to produce some pretty solid exit velocities, at least average. And beyond that, the increase in walks the comfortable approach, looking great defensively at second compared to where I saw him in the past. This guy looks like he could be a, a potential everyday option for the Mariners at second base if if they don't have any other choices or you know if he beats out some of their other options. The other side of it is he's a reverse splits guy, and you can definitely see that. Very comfortable against righties. Was not as comfortable against lefties, even the games that I saw. And if you look at the numbers on the year, including the fall league, 720 OPS against lefties. Against righties, he had a 938 OPS. So that's an interesting nuance in this. And I, I didn't really think to, to look at that until I saw some of the ABs and I saw how much more comfortable he looked from the right side. But this is somebody that performed on a, on a really ridiculous level this year, has just improved the approach, and is becoming increasingly difficult to deny as a hitter and, and as a player that can play some solid second base, that can play shortstop in a pinch. We haven't seen him do that out here. And I think the focus is literally just to have him be playing as much second base as possible. He predominantly played shortstop this year, and I think he's capable of doing that at somewhat somewhere near a passable level at the big league level, but there's no need for him to do that because the Mariners are set at short with J.P. Crawford. So with Bliss, I think the focus has been get him as many reps at second base, get him continue to get him comfortable, and develop as a guy that could be their nine hitter. And if you're that nine hitter for the Mariners next year, they want you to walk, they want you to put bat on ball, and just be a speedster. And that's exactly what he has done so far in the fall league. So I see Bliss 
creating that that profile that could win him a job in Seattle. I think the power will continue to, to come, but think about where he's going to be playing. It's it's one of the more pitcher-friendly environments regardless, so it's more important to get bat on ball. It's more important to draw those walks, and if you hit some home runs, you hit some home runs, but you're not going to hit 25 at the highest level, and I think that's become clear to Bliss, and that's why he's working on those other facets of his game, and it, it was impressive to see uh, that level of selectivity and just overall comfort in the box. The game just seems to be a little bit slower for him than some of these other guys, and that's probably because he had such a good year. He's a little bit more uh, experienced than some of the other guys that he's playing against. going to be 24 at the start of this next season. That'll do it for this episode. A lot more to talk about. I'm going to see TK Roby today. I'm going to see Reggie Crawford. I'm going to see a lot of other intriguing prospects that I'm excited to break down, and I'm going to try to discuss as many as possible. Also, some sound interviews with some of those guys later this week, and we are still going to break down that Giants farm system this week as well. As always, thank you for listening. Look forward to talking prospects with you tomorrow. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.